Kia ora tato, no mai harimai. Wade Manson here from Sport Gisborne Tairawhiti, and you're listening to our podcast, The Sideline Yak. No mai hoki mai kiti sideline yak. Today we sit down to Korero with professional rugby player and Poverty Bay Heartland coach Maya Nikora. Once I sort of got my mind to that positive state, um, things just started changing for me. Maya currently works for the Poverty Bay Rugby Union as the game development officer. He is the head coach of the Poverty Bay Heartland rugby team and is the assistant coach of the 2023 New Zealand Heartland 15 rugby team. We talk about his new vocation as a coach, but more importantly, Maya takes us on a journey of his career as a professional rugby player. How the love of the game and wanting to make his family proud set him on a path beginning at Gisborne Boys High School onto the national age group scene through the New Zealand MPC competition and then overseas playing in Ireland and Italy. Maya shares his stories of this incredible time in his life, the dedication to make it as a professional rugby player and the setbacks that occurred with non-selection and injuries. We discuss how he overcame adversity through a positive mindset and confronting those challenges head on. We chat about the support of his family, his reflections on his career and his natural move into the rugby coaching space. This is a great listen for coaches, parents and especially aspiring athletes. Kia manahou, enjoy. Kia ora mai. thank you for joining us today on the Sideline Yak. I just want to dive in, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I want to dive into something that's topical as the Lahore Cup final uh, versus West Coast. Obviously we didn't get the result we wanted. I'm really keen to talk to you around, as a coach, the halftime talk because the boys were down 23-0 and from there you came back storming out in the second half. What did the halftime talk look like to be able to get those boys up to where they needed to be? Well, it wasn't one of those sort of sort of go off at them type um, halftime talks because the effort was still there. When there's sort of lack of effort, that's when it can be frustrating as a coach and you sort of go into halftime and you need to deliver a stern message or well, that's how I look at it. If I could see that the effort and intent was there, things that were sort of not going so well for us was around our discipline, like our, our breakdown discipline. We were giving a lot of penalties away at the breakdown and our scrum was under a lot of pressure. So key sort of messages at half time were around sorting that discipline out, making better decisions at the breakdown. And then we'd been forced into making a, a change at scrum as well, just to try and shore that scrum up, scrum up. So we thought if we could get those couple of things right, maintain a bit of continuity with the ball because we're at our best when we're building phases. We couldn't get our attack game going in that first half because we were giving away penalties all the time and they were living off the back of them with territory and possession. So we thought if we could um, nail our scrum, sort it out, break down and get some continuity in, into our game, we could sort of get back into it. And it was just a more of a, we've been here before boys was the last message. Um, we've been down by bigger scores at half time and, and come back to win. We did it last week. Let's just go out there, nail those three things and, and see what happens from there. You mentioned it wasn't a, a going off at them <laughs> uh, conversation. What kind of coach are you in terms of that? Do you have those situations where you need to do that? Or uh, is it you're quite level-headed, quite calm, and they're able to react based on that? Usually quite calm and level-headed, but the only time I do get frustrated is when I do see that lack of intent and, and effort, really. like Especially in the physical parts of the game, you can tell a team's a little bit off when the tackles are passive, you know, riding tackles, where you're coughing ball up in the in the carry, um, you're not quite dynamic enough on the clean out and, and that wasn't the case on that day. So um it wasn't about going in there and giving them giving them a bit of a blast, but there is a time and a place for that. But that for me that's when I see seeing that lack of effort. Yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. There's always that level of frustration, eh, I suppose, as a coach and just how we react to that or how we're able to bring those those guys together and, and get all the girls as well like depending on who you're coaching and, and get them on the right path to where they need to be but it's cool that you can identify it as well and then yeah being able to talk to them get them going it was always just a, a really interesting thing I thought I just wanted to hit straight off the bat just so <laughs> we could get into it because that's a massive achievement to come back you know just short mm. but massive it's cool yeah and even um 
I think the boys, they still had that belief in them as well. Like the leaders, um, some of their chat was really positive and good. Like the body language was still good at halftime. We we knew we'd sort of just, well, they knew they'd sort of just let themselves down. So yeah, um, that was massive on their part as well. How do you create that belief? Uh, that's a tough one. I guess it comes back to trusting trusting yourself, trusting your systems. It's tough. We had a, actually had a tough batch through the middle of the season and we're only losing by by tight margins. But it's funny how much your sort of mentality changes and you, you, you start doubting yourself and, and you, you know, wondering what's going on. But I think if you, you just trust yourself, you, you stick to what you believe and you stick to your systems. Um, and once they do come right, I think that's where the belief is gained. I, I thought once guys sort of bought into what we were trying to do and, and saw things were working and, and, and the boys implemented some things and they saw things were working, uh, I think that grows belief as well. Looking at just the Poverty Bay team, so you came on board, was it 2018 as a trainer? Would that yep. be about right? Yep. 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 And then from there, assistant coach in 2019 and then head coach 2022. Are you creating relationships along the way? Is that something that's probably helped up to the point that you are now? Oh, there's been a bit of a changeover from from 18 when I when I had that, that trainer role to where there is now. There's probably a th- quite a few from 18 through to 21. And we sort of built up to um, a really good season in 2021 with winning the, the Bull Osborne Tonga that year. And then we sort of lost a few and then probably lost a few more leaders from from last year to this year as well. So fairly new in, in terms of leadership group, but still some fairly experienced um, rugby players within that. So still probably only have maybe around 50% of the team from even 2019, I'd say, at yeah. the moment. Yeah. So what got you interested in coaching? Just always been passionate about rugby, really. I guess while I was playing professionally as well, I had opportunities to coach um, through injuries, in particular one when I was in at Connacht over in Ireland and I um, had shoulder surgery there. And so I was out for I was out for six months, meant to be out for six months, and Pat Lamb, who was head coach there at the time, sort of got me in doing a lot of analysis on the upcoming oppositions that we were playing then and that sort of that sort of got me into it a bit and then I also helped coach a, a club team while I was over in Ireland as well but particularly that spell where I was out with shoulder injury sort of opened my eyes up to the other side of the game I guess and um, just doing that video analysis stuff taught me a lot around trends and how people were playing and it's I sort of think it's given me a sort of good eye around that sort of stuff now as well. I'm going to touch on that shortly well a little bit later around um the the move to ireland and and the shoulder injury let's go like right back to the start are you able to share with us what sport looked like for you growing up yeah sport was massive for me growing up um actually started off playing league i remember as a youngster rugby was only new image so it was like that two hand on the hips type rugby non-contact um, type stuff and league used to be played on Sundays and that was full on tackle so I started off playing league and, and new image rugby at the same time played for Tūranga Panthers under sevens in the league and then for Manatuke Mustangs under nines actually so I uh, started off with league and then came over to rugby and rugby became my, my ultimate passion really but in and around that played uh, cricket was another big one for me uh, enjoyed playing basketball touch um, squash Played a lot through high school as well. So, yeah, Wakaama when I was younger, basketball. Yeah, sport was, was a big part of, of growing up for me, yeah. Who were your influences back then? Like, who who got you? Was anyone in particular that got you into sport? I think I come from a pretty sporty family. My father had excelled at, at sports as well. He was tennis, uh, rugby, softball. Yeah, he was pretty much into everything. Uncles and aunties were, were into everything. And I think it sort of just grew from there. Family was a big influence on me. My uncle Sean Fitzsimons was sort of someone I looked up to. He was came through and played New Zealand age grade teams as well in rugby. So he was, he was someone that I looked up to. But yeah, all around the I think my whole family had a sort of big influence on me and and, and sport. So when did rugby become a thing? I think I remember being like standard four in nineteen ninety six, and rugby had just turned professional. Pretty much from that moment on, it was something that I sort of aspired to and and wanted to become, you know, um, to be able to do it for a living. I probably started, yeah, I'd say around that point. Moving into boys high, 
do you see this as something that I want to really get going with? Yeah, I always saw it as something I really wanted to get going with. And Boys High being um, the school they had been and having a pretty clear path if you wanted to chase rugby dreams as well, seeing players come through there and, and become professionals, you know, like the Gear Brothers, James Kerr before that, one of the first ones, seeing those guys come through and being able to see that, I guess it was achievable through your local school was, was big. And yeah, I often have chats um, with my wife around, she remembers back when I, because we met when we were pretty young, so she knows what I was like back at high school when I was pretty, um, pretty determined around rugby. I probably wouldn't advise my kids the same thing with how sometimes I'd, you know, put school aside and wasn't, uh, it was almost like a, no, I don't need that, I'm going to be a rugby player anyway. So, yeah, I guess I always had that determination, but, um, yeah, something I wouldn't sort of preach to young ones these days. <laughs> um, Schoolwork and education and career outside of sport should be your plan A and, and um, be, becoming a professional sports person really should be a plan B, but I had it the other way around and I was um, just fortunate enough that it, that it worked out. Where did the determination come from? Like what, like what set you on that path? Yeah, I guess I just, just, just love the game, I guess. It was about just wanting to use my talent, I guess, to the, to the best I could to be able to make a good, good living. I could, I could see people were making a good living out of the sport. It was about probably making my family proud as well. It was a big thing, yeah. Any highlights or anything from the school side of things, from school rugby boys high that, that stood out the time that you were at school? In terms of the rugby, I, I guess the, the connections you build with, with people at that age group and you, you know, you're spending, you spend five years together, you create um, some unreal bonds with, with the people uh, that you're around at that time. And that's always, yeah, a big memory for me. It's like playing sort of first 15 was probably one of the, the highlights of my career, actually. You know, if there was, I guess, go back and play for one team, I'd probably, yeah, want to go back and play for Boys High again. It's amazing you say that because I was just listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking to Josh Cromfield and it was a similar sort of thing that he was mentioning around school rugby and how he almost like described as being better than the other rugby. It's just like the same thing, like the relationships, the connections you build, mm. you're growing up together, like just that sort of, there's so much happening within your life, like new experiences and stuff like that, but you're doing it as a group and you're with each other for, you know, that long um, spell. Yeah, it's, um, and a lot of the time even before it, you know, you've gone through primary and intermediate with, with these guys, so it's, um, yeah, it's quite special actually. Nice. Mm. Cool, so moving on from school, then you've started moving into the, the New Zealand secondary schools in the under-19, under-21 level. What did that look like? Yeah, I think it started off around fifth form with that New Zealand stuff because remember New Zealand under-16s was the first sort of national team you could make in rugby and I remember I remember seeing the New Zealand under-16 team playing on TV, must have been when I was year in third or fourth form and once I became that sort of under-16 age in, in fifth form, it was always... It was always a goal of mine to try and see if I could make that team. And we had the under-16 tournament, the Hurricanes under-16 tournament here in Gisborne that year. And they have all the selectors and stuff at that tournament. And um, that was probably my first step into into the national scene, being able to get identified at that under-16 age. So they didn't actually pick an actual team that, that year, that, but they picked a group of 40 players from around the country to, to go into a camp and... Being in the first 15 helped big time with that as well. So I was in the first 15 that year and when selectors see that you're playing at probably the highest level or in New Zealand first 15 rugby, that goes a long way as well. So managed to make that that camp and then the sort of the New Zealand stuff flowed, flowed on from there. The next year was Hurricane Schools and then managed to make the New Zealand schools from there. And once you're in the system, you sort of you've always almost got a bit of an inside run, running. As long as you can sort of keep performing at a at a pretty decent level, you, you sort of do have a an inside runnings. And then the school sort of developed into the New Zealand under 19s and then the New Zealand 21s. So, um, but it wasn't all plain sailing along the way either. I'd made the New Zealand tw- uh, 19s two years in a row, and then missed out on the New Zealand 21s in in 2005. That was. I was only lucky that I got caught in through injury to the World Cup that year. And the following year, 2006, I was still eligible for the 21s, but 
I didn't even end up making the final trial initially for that. New coach came in and, yeah, saw things a different way. I was just lucky enough again in the end that I got called in um, to the trial late and managed to impress enough to um, make that team to go to the World Cup in 2006, that was as well. So all in all, uh, awesome sort of five, six years of of my life being in, in those teams. And, um, yeah, pretty yeah, fortunate, I guess, in a lot of ways. How do you deal with the, like being young, how do you deal with that situation where you, you don't even make the trials or you don't even, don't get picked? I was contracted to Wellington at the time as well and they had a, he was a professional development manager. So he was sort of someone that you'd go to, if, I know, battling a bit, I guess, and for a bit of advice. And so I went in and saw him sort of almost a day or two after I'd, I'd known I'd missed out on that trial. And we got on the phone straight away to the then coach of the New Zealand 21s was Greg Cooper at the time and just asked some feedback around my work-ons and what I needed to do to potentially get to the, you know, if there was an opportunity, came up and and things like that. So um, that's how I sort of went about that and then fortunate enough from there to get caught into the trial and remembering the feedback that um, I'd been given from the coach. So... Yeah, that's was how I'd sort of approach that, and I think that's a pretty good way to sort of confront things head on if you really want to know, and um, at least it keeps that coach knowing that you're you are hungry, and if there's an opportunity that um, you know that might be more likely yeah. to give you one. Yeah, nice, <laughs> cool. Now I read an article around the 2004 under 19 team. Some big names in there: Richard Kahui, Kieran Reid, Hicka Elliott. Would that be one of the the highlights in terms of, because that was the World Cup that you guys won against France, one of the highlights of your career or like in terms of that space, that time frame? Yeah, at the time it was. It was massive. I'd been involved with the team as well in 2003 and we lost the final to South Africa over in France. So being able to come back the next year and um, win the World Cup was huge. And as you said, there was some, some quality players in, in that team as well. So yeah, that was a yeah, massive moment. Moving on from the, the age groups and we head into, I want to say it's the NPC, but is it NPC or is it it's the ITM Cup? Eh? It's like sort of that time or was it more than yeah, nas- it was, it was the national sort of It was game. sort of NPC, then it moved to, they called it the New Zealand Cup for a while there while, while I was involved in, I think it changed to ITM, the Mitre 10, so it's had a, a few <laughs> different names, but I think it just gone from NPC into New Zealand Cup when I was involved. So you would have started with Poverty Bay first. Would that have been, when would have you been playing for Poverty Bay? Uh, so I only played age grade stuff for, for Poverty Bay. Once I finished school, I signed with the Wellington Rugby Academy. So I moved down to Wellington at the end of my last year at Boys High into the academy down there. Um, I'd signed there for, for a couple of years in the academy. But funnily enough, didn't end up making my first class debut for, for Wellington. I ended up playing for Taranaki. It was my first sort of NPC game. Um, at the time, Wellington had quite a bit of depth in the first five area. David Holwell was around. Jimmy Gopith was around. Pity Wipu and Tamari Ellison could play first five as well. So there was an opportunity in Taranaki, and I went there on loan in um, 2006, and that's where I made my sort of, yeah, my debut, my first class debut. And then... Back to Wellington? Yeah, so after that loan spell, um, I went back to Wellington. And so I was meant to be there for the 2007 season, but I injured my shoulder sort of partway through that year. So from Taranaki, I'd been picked up in the Hurricanes uh, wider training group for that year. So back then in Super Rugby, they used to pick a squad of, I think it was around 28, and then they used to take seven guys in the wider training group that you're sort of on a part-time contract, I guess, over that season. So I was involved with with that space for the first part of the year. And if you weren't making playing squad for Hurricanes, then you'd just go back and play club rugby. And I uh, injured my shoulder playing club rugby that year. Continued on, um, tried to rehab it back. Ended up doing some ligaments in my wrist as well that year. So I only played one or maybe in two NPC games that year for Wellington. And then went and got my first shoulder operation in November of that year, which put me out for six months as well. Yeah, so 2007 wasn't wasn't the greatest year. I'd sort of 
um, been in the mix 2006 and then it got into that Hurricanes wider training group and then 2007 was the first sort of real time that injuries had sort of struck and sometimes um, they just all seemed to come at once and, and, and 2007 was that year so yeah hardly any rugby played in that year and at the end of that year had the surgery and I just asked my agent at the time to look at other opportunities because there were some you know young guys that come through in Wellington there's still um, some decent experience around there so asked them to look for some new opportunities and was sort of fortunate enough I guess that Tasman Marcos offered me a, a contract um, for 2008 so I ended up heading down there. Talk to me about the shoulder injury like this obviously when the first one pops up What's the process with a setback like that, especially when you say like there's other younger guys coming in, you've got the old guy still there, I've got to start looking somewhere else. Like like what, what's going around in your head? Yeah, it's pretty tough because then um, looking around at the same time and you're seeing guys from that my New Zealand under-19 team like the Kieran Reeds and um, Michael Pattersons, the, the Hicka Elliots, the Richard Kahui's, they're all gone. They're all super rugby players now. They're almost knocking on the door of All Blacks and sort of been on that path and, and not quite got there. And my, yeah, like I said earlier, my my main goal was to be a full professional rugby player and you're, you're not a full professional rugby player in New Zealand unless you're playing um, super rugby. So I still hadn't achieved that. As you said, younger guys are coming through. They're always nipping at your heels. You know, we've got one of the, you know, the system here and the talent that comes through is is pretty massive. So you've always got to be on top of your game. And then when injuries kick in, yeah, you're worried about that. You're sort of not where you, you want to be career-wise. And then it's, yeah, it's just trying to take a step back. And like I said, the injury, I knew I had to sort that. I thought it was a good time to sort that. And then I guess getting... Um, an opportunity with Tasman gave me that sort of fresh outlook and something to look forward to again. What does the support look like when you're going through that recovery or the, the obviously the injury and then waiting till you get to the, the time that you can play? What does your support system look like? Is it within rugby? Is it within family? What like what was helping you get through that? Bit of both, eh? I remember yeah, my wife and I were in separate towns at that stage. So I was in Wellington. She was in Palmy. She had a really good job. She actually became the youngest ever Michael Hill jeweler manager. So she had her career and then I was trying to chase my career in another place. But she was still really supportive through all that. Um, my mum as well. I was living with my mum at the time in Wellington and, and, and she was a bit, big support through that recovery. And then you have your, your physios and, and your doctors and, and stuff as well. You don't really see too much of the... Um, I guess the the team as much, especially in those early parts of of re prehab rehab, and because I was moving on from Wellington to Tasman, I was sort of even the Wellington physio and doctors were still seeing me. Was I sort of had sort of detached myself from that that union and that team? Yeah, those the medics around that time were a big big help as well. Because just something you mentioned there when you detach yourself from the team and you go to Tasman, but then obviously you come back to Wellington. Um, is it Tamati Allison got injured and is that is that right? Oh, that was so that was in two thousand six. Oh, yeah, yeah. So two thousand six on loan to Taranaki and played every game for them up until I think it was maybe round eight or so of that season, and then Tamati Allison got injured, who had been with Wellington, so I got called back to Wellington that year and ended up playing in the or being in the squad for the semis and finals of that 2006 season for, for Wellington. Yep. Yeah. Tasman was the last New Zealand team that you played for before you went over to Ireland? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So Tasman was the last New Zealand team I played for. And I'd signed a two-year contract with Tasman, but it had a clause in it that if I didn't make um, Super Rugby, then I had the option to, to look elsewhere. I thought I had a pretty decent season that year with Tasman as well. I started every game. For them, um, form was pretty consistent, but didn't catch the eye of any of the super teams. Um, you sort of know when you're in the mix for Super Rugby around midpoint of the NPC. You usually get it oh, back in those days. You got a letter saying that you were in contention. So I was in contention, but didn't end up making any of the final teams. I probably would have even stayed if I'd made another wider training group as well, but didn't. So looked at options overseas or asked my agent to look at options overseas at that time and I didn't want to go on a short stint either 
just uh, in between season, I, was, I thought, ah, that's, if I'm going to go overseas, I want to give it a really good shot. And um, yeah, it must have been around Christmas time, 2008, just going into 2009, that an offer came through from Connacht in Ireland, which I was, um, yeah, obviously ended up being real happy with at the time. And um, so we headed over there. So yeah, before you head to Ireland, you didn't get picked in the Super Rugby team. Was there frustration that because you wanted to, like you were heading towards that professional career and like putting Ireland aside, you're wanting to obviously stay in New Zealand? I suppose even the other question is, was the main goal to, to be at All Black or was the goal always to be just professional and, and Super Rugby was going to be the mark that you wanted to hit? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, definitely that that reassessment. Yeah, like I said, 23, ultimate goal overall, I th- for any aspiring rugby players to, is that all-black level and um, to make that all-black level you have to be playing super rugby and I hadn't been able to to do that. I hadn't sort of written it off but like you said it was time to reassess. I was at an age where I thought I didn't want to leave it too late to go overseas as well so without being a super rugby player or an international player it can be a bit harder um, to get something overseas but I thought maybe putting the feelers out at a younger age might help me a little bit. And I signed for two years with, with Connacht at the time, but even in the back of my mind, I thought if you know if things don't work out or if there's an opportunity to come back after two years, I, I probably would. So I hadn't totally ruled out Super Rugby at that stage. I just thought it was, yeah, time to reassess, see what else was out there. And I probably started wanting to make some decent money as well, and that was what sort of Connacht gave me, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Did your wife move to Ireland as well? Yeah, so she gave up um, her career here with Michael Hill when we both moved over. That was in what, June 2009, that was, yeah. How did that go? Like, completely different country for rugby. Like, was there was there a massive change or easy to fit into Ireland lifestyle? The lifestyle was really easy to fit into, you know, really good people. We were in a really good place over there, based in Galway in the west of Ireland, which is a real cool town, a real vibrant. Um, all throughout the year, you can sort of go out somewhere on any night and there'll be a few places that are busy. So there's always always something on, something to do. It's got a couple of universities there. And we really enjoyed our, our time there. In terms of the rugby, I found that harder to adapt. You know, the weather's different, rain's a lot more. There was a bit more grind at the time type of approach to the game, real physical approach to the game, where it was back here was probably a bit more free-flowing, and I like the f- free-flowing nature of that game. So I had to um, change and adapt quite a bit to the different style, and, yeah, it took me a while. I remember after six months or so, I'd, I wanted to come home, and I even had started um, in the background in formal chats with, with Tasman again, assistant coach at the time at come up to being head coach there and I wasn't uh, yeah like I said I wasn't enjoying it at the time and at Connacht um, I wasn't getting too much game time like I said struggling to adapt a little bit to the game but ended up sticking it out we had a a Kiwi trainer over there at the time a guy called Greg Muller who had been trainer at the Blues here in New Zealand before going over there and he was um, was almost a bit of a life coach and I had a few chats with him around my thoughts at the time and he got me onto a book called The The Power of Positive Thinking. Yeah, it just changed my whole outlook. Once I sort of got my mind to that positive state, um, things just started changing for me. And towards the end of the season, um, you know, won a couple of games with kicks or drop goals for Connacht. We ended up in the European Challenge Cup semi-final that year and we played Toulon and they had like Sonny Bill and um, Johnny Wilkinson and pretty stacked team at the time. Um, we ended up playing them in the semi. So I ended up having some, going from some, probably some of the lowest times in my career to, yeah, probably some of the highest within that, that first season. So, yeah, and then it sort of just um, flowed from there. We got, so I got through that season, got through that initial season with Connacht um, in a really happy space and then it wasn't too long into my second season that I got offered another two-year contract and um, yeah I, th- I guess the thoughts of coming home were at that stage were pretty much gone well, we, were, we were really happy really settled my wife was pregnant now so having that security around us was a big thing too.
Yeah. Is, is there anything that you could share from that book that actually got you onto that path of being a lot more positive or coming out of that time of wanting to go back home? Yeah, I remember making up a vision wall around everything that I wanted to, wanted to achieve around not just in rugby but in life sort of thing. So, you know, the, the house I wanted, the, the truck I wanted, the, the teams I wanted to make moving forward, um, all that sort of stuff. So I had my vision board and I, I think I, I left it in the bathroom, eh, in the, in the toilet um, and every morning and <laughs> sort of being there and that'll be, you know, the forefront. Um, so that was a big thing for me and just having that, um, yeah, that mind switch, like I said, into a positive mind frame and having those those things to, to look at and um, obviously bring on a bit of belief, I think. Um, and when things start happening, um, that's when you feel that reward around some of the stuff, some of the mental stuff you've been doing, I guess. Yeah, That's perfect. That's great. That's awesome. So the highlights out of Ireland in terms of uh, in rugby, anything that you can share? Yeah, there were a load of highlights. I, I think like the, the end of that first season was a big one for me. And then moving into, I think it was my third season there, we had qualified for the first time ever, kind of qualified for the, the Heineken Cup. So there's the there's the Challenge Cup, which is sort of the, uh, not it's still quality teams, but it's not the main European tournament over there. The, the Heineken Cup, or I think it's the Champions Cup now, is the big one that all, all the teams sort of aspire to. We managed to um, qualify for that in my third season, and I remember our first game for that was against Harlequins from England, and we played them over there. And Nick Evans... Uh, was their first five at the time and so I marked him that night and we just fell short in that game but we had some quality teams in our pool we had so Harlequins from England um, Toulouse from France and Gloucester from England as well so we we play home and away when you're in that in that Heineken Cup so we played Harlequins in the first round and then Toulouse came to us the next weekend and they were they were they were stacked as well. They Terry Dusatois, I think he was the French captain at the time. Luke McAllister had gone from here and he he was playing over over there as well. Then Maxime Medard was the the French fullback at the time. Um, Josie on, I think he was their second five that night. Um, they were just they were just stacked and they ended up giving us a bit of a hiding in the end. But that was a massive moment for Connacht Rugby. Um, usually the ground would only be around six thousand capacity, but but that night they. Bought an extra seating, it was ten thousand, wow. and it was just a the mess, a massive week. Like the buzz around the whole town was huge, and I remember that that atmosphere was um, unreal that night. Yeah, nice. So one thing we probably haven't touched on is actually your position. Obviously, fly half, they call it number ten, first five. When did that come about? Like when you started back when you were younger, that was a position that you were drawn to. And um, I actually enjoyed playing in the midfield when I was younger, so more second five centre. I was pretty. Pretty big, I guess. I was always pretty big for my age coming through until I got to probably around year 10, year 11, and then everyone else started overtaking. And the position I trialled for for the first 15 was first five, and then it sort of just came about from then. That that became my position. I sort of dabbled in a little bit of fullback as well um, over time and, and played a few games for Connacht at, at second five as well. But yeah, it wasn't a natural first five to begin with. Um, like I said, enjoyed playing in that midfield role, but then developed and became quite, you know, passionate about that position. Yeah. What was the position like when you described that the the whole style of rugby was different in terms of it being free flowing at home, and then over there it's a lot more full on. Does that position become different for you when you're in Ireland, or no? Uh, it's, no, it is a bit different. I think there probably was a bit more. Bit more kicking. Had to develop my kicking game while I was there. Another thing adjusting was goal kicking, and everyone's just quiet over there. That that took a bit to getting used to. <laughs> but then after a while, it does become second nature. But for that first wee while, it actually made me way more nervous because um, you know all the eyes are on you. Whereas back here, playing somewhere else, you could almost use the noise as a bit of motivation to to help you with the kick. Whereas over there, you know, you know. Everyone's just zoned in on you, so that was a bit of adjusting. But yeah, I think the main difference would have been around um, developing that kicking game in terms of a ten over there. Yeah. You look at kicking now, and it's like there's a 
there's a massive process that goes into it. Like when you watch them, mm. and I suppose now they've brought in the um, the clock to make sure we hurry up. Was there a process that you went through? Uh, in terms of the goal kicking, I probably didn't figure out my style in terms of my my technique. I probably didn't figure that out properly until I was around probably 25, 26. Um, a lot of it was playing around with different methods and and trying different things um, but I think once you become comfortable and find a technique that suits you then it makes things a lot easier but yeah I guess a lot of it's about figuring it out as well people ask me around goal kicking these days and it's something that I um, if I'm coaching it trying to not be too technical with it a lot of it is feel and, and, and finding out for yourself what, what best works for you did you get help in that time? Were there people that would help with the technique, or again, is it just something that you just had to figure out yourself? No, there was there was still help along the way. I remember when I first made the New Zealand under nineteen team, and I was still living back here at the time. I wasn't the best best goal kicker going through school, and just felt like I needed a bit of help at the time. And Glenn Noodle, he was playing for high school boys in Poverty Bay at the time, and you know he was a really really good goal kicker. He was probably the first one that I ever got coaching from back then, and I remember even that being a being a massive help. And he wasn't too technical either; pretty simple method. And then had Daryl Halligan. Once I made the New Zealand under nineteens, he came in and took us for some kicking sessions. And then Mick Byrne, who came in as the All Black um, kicking coach when I was involved with Wellington, he came in and ran a few sessions with us as well. So you take a bit of parts from from everyone you come into contact with. I guess um, when I was in Ireland, our backs coach, our assistant coach at the time, was a guy called Eric Elwood, who had been the Irish first five for quite a few years as well. So he was another one that, that I learned a bit off. So you take parts of all these different people, but then you still got to make it your own as well. So they were all, all a big help, but then through me trying different methods, adding little things in from what they'd passed on, that's where I sort of came up with um, my end technique, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Staying in Ireland, and then the shoulder injury comes back? Yes, no, I'd been in Ireland four years at the time, and then I'd only signed on for one more year. Pat Lamb had just been appointed as head coach of Connacht, um, so he was coming over from the Blues. He wasn't too sure around the, di- the direction of players moving forward, but he offered me a one-year contract to stay on at the time, which, again, I was really grateful for. We were pretty happy there, pretty settled. We had had our daughter... She would have been moving into, should have been three and a half at the time. My wife had actually just become pregnant as well. So this was right at the start of that, that one-year contract once Pat had come over. We were going in, in, in pre-season and it was just at training and just an accident. I sort of fell awkwardly, had my arm out and one of our big locks just fell on top of me Ouch. while my um, while my arm was extended. and I, I knew I was in, in trouble straight away and it was the same shoulder that I'd previously had surgery on, but this was now six years after. Yeah, so I knew I was in, 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 in trouble straight away. Like I said, we just sort of found out my wife was pregnant as well. I was um, only on a one-year contract, so I was coming up um, at the end of that season. Yeah, it was a tricky time, I guess, and I sort of had to make a decision at the time whether I did go down the surgery route, which I knew was going to keep me up for six months, or... Do I try and rehab it and give it two months and see if that rehab was going to work? But there was always that, if I go two months now and rehab it, come back, and it's still not right, then I have to go get surgery. Then I'm sort of riding off the that whole season and that chance of getting a contract is starting to diminish a little bit. So I took the option to get the surgery at the time. So this was September. We The season goes through till May. So I just put the bullet, got the, got the surgery done with the aim of getting back as quick as possible so I could get some games at the end of the season. Yeah, so I was meant to be up for, for six months, that one, and I ended up coming back after five months. I think I was back around the, the February time, so there's wow. still three months left in the season. But with that, you know, I stopped drinking for the, for the whole time, didn't touch alcohol, Took all these supplements that, like, around collagen and, and stuff that the, we had a nutritionist at the time and he sort of gave me some supplement ideas around 
that that would help with the type of injury and the, and the surgery I had and, and and some diet stuff and that. So yeah, I managed to get back in February and like I said earlier, during that five months I was off. Pat had asked me to do a lot of analysis stuff on opposition, which sort of got me in more into that coaching sort of mind frame and um, I'd often present to the team on on my findings and where opportunities were in the in the team they were playing and stuff like that. So I think that's what sort of kick, kick started my coaching really. Mm. But then, yeah, the determination to get back because, um, yeah, I had a, a baby on the way and a, and a family to feed, yeah. So. Nice. Obviously your mindset was a lot different than when you first came to Ireland to be able to get you on the right track and, and get you moving a lot quicker and that positivity would have been forefront of yeah. you going back there. Yeah, and I'd actually only played, I think it was only a couple of games and it got to March and again, fortunate enough to be offered a contract not not too long after coming back. So well, I think that came through some of the work work I'd done and, and what the coaching staff had, had seen at the time. So yeah, it gave me another year anyway. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So that was like another year after the injury. So when you came back and then you got another contract, another year's contract after that, was it? That yeah, like so it? I came back from the injury in the February. Yeah. And then March, I'd already had another contract on the table. So I was coming up May, I would have been done. Yeah. So luck, lucky enough, I was able to sort of get one well in time before that sort of May cutoff date, I guess, and nice. be able to plan ahead and have a bit of security. Yeah. Mm. That final contract, that one-year contract, was that heading towards the end of Ireland? Yeah, so that became my last year in Ireland. Yeah. Once I got that last one. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so basically, you're heading home. Yeah, I I definitely felt it was time um, for a change. Yeah. After that, I was coming. That was my sixth year in Ireland, and I probably got to the halfway point of that season. There were some really good young players coming through as well. A guy called Jack Carty who went on to play quite a few tests for Ireland was coming through the system at, in Ireland and he'd sort of snapped up the the number one, number ten position at that time. I wasn't getting um, the game time as I, I previously had in, in earlier years there. So I felt like it was time for, for a change. And again, so it's you know, back to the agent, back to putting the, the feelers out again and this one was really late, so I sort of come to an agreement with Connick that we were going to part ways in around March of 2000 and 2015, and then sort of from that point, it's, yeah, yeah, your agent's putting the feelers out and you're hoping something comes up. We wanted to stay over in Europe at that time if we could, and it wasn't until, uh, we'd always planned to come back after that season just for a holiday just to come see our family and, and things like that and it wasn't until our stopover in Abu Dhabi on the way home that a formal contract came through from a club in Italy again yeah which I was fortunate enough to get so um, they got me another year playing professional rugby but even on that flight so from we got the offer in Abu Dhabi and I'll stop over there on the, on the way back and then we had another stopover in Sydney I think it was before we came back through to New Zealand and I had a, a message on my phone once we got to Sydney from, it was actually from Southland Stags and Brad Moore, who's now Scotland coach and was Southland coach at the time and went on to coach Crusaders, was head coach at the time and um, he had left a message just seeing what I was up to. But I'd already signed. Yeah, I'd already, yeah. I'd already signed while we were in Abu Dhabi and, and faxed it back to the club in Italy. Uh, but I was pretty comfortable with that decision as well. I think um, my time, or oh, was I 30, 31 at, at that stage? I think my time in New Zealand was well and truly over, I thought. Yeah, so yeah, we were heading off to Italy after our, our holiday in, in New Zealand. So was Italy sort of like the swan song or was like how long were you there and then when, when did you come home? To, when did that transition happen? Yeah, so we ended up in Italy for, for two years. Yeah, I'd sort of, oh, we loved it over there as well. It was um, in terms of family life and and balance, it was it was awesome. And, and the weather, you know, total change of climate, uh, the food, the, the places. Yeah, we had an unreal time as a family over in Italy. I thought I was done. You know, I was going 32, 33. And I had a, a couple of um, concussions in Italy as well. Like, had a few throughout my career, um, but symptoms and stuff never really stuck around too long with previous ones I had and I had 
had one big one while we were in Italy. I played for a club called Petrarca and our local derby uh, was a team called Rovigo, which is not far up the road and was local derby and I managed to cop one around the head in a tackle. I thought it was just one of those ones, you know, I've, I've been here before, you feel a bit funny after the game, you might vomit, but then next day you're usually feeling all right and then woke up the next day and wasn't feeling right. Woke up the next day, still not feeling right and um, the symptoms just seemed to hang around forever. I didn't play a game for, I think it was around six weeks mm. after that and felt fine going into my next game as well. But then woke up the next day after my first game back and the room spinning and, and things like that. And I hadn't even taken a, a proper knock wow. in the game. Yeah, so I knew I wasn't in a, a great space then with the head and tried to take a, a bit more time off and still managed to get back into playing through different spells on the sideline. But that sort of that sort of thing started weighing in the back of my mind as well towards the end of Italy. So I thought that was going to be the end for me. But I ended up meeting a guy called Kane Hensey, who's from New Zealand. One of my mates, one of my mates who I met at Connacht, a guy for, called Troy Nathan, another Kiwi guy. He had started up these um, rugby camps over there. They were called Haka Rugby. And so I was helping um, with these camps in the summer after my two years in in Italy, and I met a guy called Kane Hensey, and he was um, coaching a club over in Portugal. And um, sort of an opportunity came up there, and me and him got on like really well. Um, so I ended up going over there and doing a bit of player coaching there for um, six months or so as well. But again, in terms of the playing over there, um, head, head knocks again sort of became a thing. I sort of got to a point where I felt more relieved to come through a game, I guess, without feeling any symptoms of something and it, and it wasn't like I was getting like belted around the head or anything yeah, yeah. like that I just think I just got to a point where I didn't really want to put my head in places that I'd done in the past as well yeah. um, we had two kids and I started thinking about yeah other things in life I guess and yeah I was 32 going on 33 so we finished up there in December of 2017 and, and headed home. Did the playing finish around that time or were you still playing when you came home? Nah, that was it for me. That was it. So yeah, yeah, like I said, I I sort of don't want to put my head in yeah in places where I where I used to. Yeah, so I sort of called it called it time on on my playing days. I remember you know leaving my boots in the you know hung the boots off in the changing shed. I knew that it was going to be my last game while I was over there in Portugal. Um, so I hung my boots up there, and I've yeah never stepped foot out on a rugby field as a player ever since. Wow. Yeah. Was there a moment when you did that? Like, what, like what, what was going through your head when you did that, knowing that that's probably going to be that's it? I think I, I, I um, sort of knew at the time. I, yeah. My mind was pretty made up. Like, even I think on the playing side of it, once I'd finished in Italy, I sort of knew then that that's probably me. So yeah, I think I was pretty content at the time, even though like it was always I'd always sort of envisioned wanting to come back here and finish up as well. So. And then I'd come back here my first sort of year or two, still get a bit itchy feet sort of watching club rugby. And then once I got involved with, with Poverty Bay as a trainer, sometimes even thought then, is this, could I, could I do a sort of another year or so? Then the coaching obviously came along and coaches changed in Poverty Bay and Tom Ken's got the head coach job in 2019 and then asked me to come on board as an assistant coach. So... Once I'd got to that stage, I think I pretty much knew that that, that playing stuff's. Even though I pretty much knew at in two, end of two thousand seventeen, uh, once that once I got an assistant coach role at that level, uh, yeah, I think that sort of cemented it. Yeah. To finish off the athlete side of things, and I want to sort of go into a little bit around the coaching as well. Were you happy in terms of the goals that you wanted to achieve way back when, when you were younger, saying like that professional mm. level, were you happy with where you got to and, and what you achieved? I think I feel like I, I could have did more. I think that came back to a lot of it was around my personality, I guess. I think as a young fella, I probably could have been a bit more confident. I think if I was more confident that I probably would have got further in New Zealand. Obviously, I had a good ride of it through the New Zealand age grade teams, but then I don't feel like I kicked on like I probably should have, yeah, with what I'd been through um, and, and the pathway I was on. So I don't feel, 
I guess, full performance in that. And But like I said, I think um, if I had been a more confident person, I think I probably would have achieved um, a little bit more. Yeah. Like how would have confidence helped in that sense? Like what would have made a difference? I found it hard actually going from, you know, small town Gizzy and then going to Wellington. That was a that was a big change for me. You walk into the changing sheds and there's you know there's all blacks, there's, there's super rugby players, and I guess I found it hard. I guess just to, to come out of my shell a bit. As a first five, you know, you know you're a you're a general, you're a leader of a team, and I I think I I struggled in that space to really um, solidify myself, I guess, and give off the impression to the coaches and stuff that I could sort of lead a um, a big team. It's quite interesting. It's almost self-reflection on terms of like the confidence. It's, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's a massive thing. But I actually found I found that easier in Taranaki and Tasman, and and then going to Connacht as well, where there wasn't much limelight or spotlight, I guess, around the team. Uh, it was a bit more low key, yeah. I guess, in terms of the status of the players that were in those. In those other teams, so I guess I felt a bit more, bit more comfortable um, within those teams. Yeah, did it remind you a little bit of Gisborne, like yeah, <laughs> like smaller towns, smaller yeah. communities, sort of thing, rather than a big city. Yeah, and I think we've seen a few like that come out of Gizzy as well. And yeah, um, yeah, just being, you know, we're, we're we're comfortable in our in our own setting and 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 the people around and the the tightness of it and the small town sort of thing and. Um, yeah, and I guess that's where I sort of um, uh, flourish the most as well. Big loop now back into coaching. You would have played under a, a ton of coaches. Are there any that stood out for you in terms of their style or that you looked up to? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot, I guess, and no coach was the same either. I think probably Pat Lamb sort of sticks out the most. Is He's probably the one that I learned the most of at the time. There was times at Connacht um, that I struggled and struggled even, you know, struggled with him. But I look back and the stuff that I, I learned and now implement as a coach comes from, uh, probably comes from what I learned um, through Pat. Is there anything in particular that, that you're applying now that you would have learned from him? He was big around the attention to detail, sort of opened my eyes to probably the finer arts of the game. I'd had you know, a lot of coaches previous to that was a lot of a lot of big picture stuff, but he really nailed down on the on the finer details and the in the smaller skill aspects of the game and how all those smaller things sort of fit into the big part. There's something I've read a, a little bit about. So doing my research on you. <laughs> first point I, I want to admit that you're the first person I've interviewed that has a Wikipedia page. So. <laughs> I was like slightly nervous coming in because that's huge for me. That's like massive to see that. But something I've read from videos that I've seen about like listening to you talk and stuff, you've talked a lot about legacy within your um, within the team. Can you talk to me a little bit about that in terms of a coach? Legacy or kaitiakitanga was one of our values a couple of years ago. And that sort of came through from the boys and, and the management team. We went through a process at the time around getting some direction and, and getting some values in, in place and kaitiakitanga was one of those and um, within that comes comes legacy. So I guess legacy um, comes back to um, the team you're a, part, you're a part of at the time, the organisation you're a part of and you've got to reflect back on, on what's, what's gone in that, in that team, in that organisation. You know, the great players, the great teams, the, the great people that have been involved in, in that team and how you can best um, respect them, but also um, what can you add to the legacy of, of your team, of your union, of your organisation. So what we wanted to just add to um, the legacy that had been had gone by in, in Poverty Bay Rugby. Yeah. And in terms of culture, are you able to share any examples of how you've been able to create team culture? It comes through your values and everyone being in, on the on the same page as well. So we had kaitiakitanga, manakitanga, whanaungatanga were our, our values that we created in 2021. Um, but as we touched on earlier, there's been a bit of a shift in terms of personnel in the Poverty Bay group since that point. So 
after last year, we, we felt it was time to refresh. So we went through the process again this year and, and, and came up with some new values, came, came up with um, focuses that we really wanted to hone in on coming back from the review that we had at the end of 2022. So we freshened all that things, all those things up. Then for me, it's about having a strong leadership group. Leadership group we created this year, we did something different again. So after we'd done our value session, which was part of our, our camp weekend, we got the players to put in two votes each around who they thought should be part of that leadership group. Trying to take, a, and one of our focus out of that was trying to be a bit more player-centered um, going into this season. And then, so having a strong leadership, and then it's about um, once you set your values and your behaviours you want um, from those values, it's about actually living and believing those. Uh, I think if that doesn't happen, then um, you know, waste of time having values written off the wall. If they're just if that's um, if they're just going to stay up there, so if you can um, get a good group and um, actually live those values and you've got good people around you. People's a big thing. Um, you've got the right people around you. Um, I think that's how culture's created as well. And winning goes a long way <laughs> as well. <laughs> I've found, you know, being part of winning teams or just puts everyone in a happier, happier space. But to get through those those tough times when you're losing, you do, you need, do need those good people around. And for me, it's about, yeah, uh, walking the talk and, and living your values. It's a huge thing around like the environment and like what does it look like in terms of how do you develop people over that professional like obviously you like you said like winning is a big thing but how do you incorporate that development into it because like I know when you get to that stage of like playing for Poverty Bay you're looking at results but there's also that that development that you want to be bringing in too to be able to create the base or create the um the team that you're you're wanting to hit the top mark yeah and i guess if you aren't getting um results on the scoreboard then you you got to put your mind back to to the small wins you're having like the the guy that's um he made his debut first game for property bay and he, how proud he is the development of a guy that's come through and made the hurricanes under 20s and and things like that so yeah, even though it is hard at the time when you're not getting those results on the scoreboard, you've got to celebrate the the small things as well. And 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 that was something we um, we try to do as well. Every every small thing we celebrate, every day boo game um, when you get your wicket number. If you you know if you make a team or if you make so many tackles or and stuff like that, so we always try and celebrate the the small ones as well. With your coaching career, like what what are your goals? Because we've obviously. You've looked at the Heartland 15, you were a coach observer in 2021, and now you're assistant coach. Have you got aspirations? Where, where are we heading? Where's my heading as a, as a coach now? Yeah, ideally, I think I'd probably want to end up as a, as a professional coach in rugby, but I sort of haven't got, you know, a, a step-by-step process or a timeline in terms of when that'll happen, I sort of take every moment or opportunity as it comes um, at the moment. And for the last you know, couple of years, Poverty Bay has been my focus. And I want to you know, have success here and, and do, do really well here first and foremost. And then if other things come up that I feel that I might be keen to put my, my name in the hat on, then I will, like this, this Heartland job that I go into next week but it's not all planned um I want to be here by the state I want to be there by the state I'm pretty happy in the moment with coaching and, and and coaching and coaching Poverty Bay and then like I said if there's opportunities that come up that I feel I might want to have a crack at then um yeah I think that's what I'll do yeah. is that just life Back as an athlete, you had a very clear pathway, like this is where I want to go and this is what I want to achieve. And now like almost like part two of your life, like in terms of we're going the coaching role mm. and it's a little bit more relaxed. Is it just life that's created that or like what's what's changed? Because you did you did mention when you were younger you were determined and you yeah. had that goal. Yeah. And like now you're quite relaxed. And yeah. I've always known you as being quite relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> I still have that ambition, but I'm not yeah, like I was when I was younger where I had to achieve this to be sort of happy I guess um, you know my kids are really happy being here in Gisborne we're, we're pretty happy being here as a family I'm pretty 
content, like I said, with where I am. Um, I want to do the best for our region and, and for Poverty Bay. But yeah, I definitely a more, I guess, relaxed. Uh, take it as it come or as it comes. I don't know if that's the right sort of phrase, but yeah, I am. I still have ambition, but I am yeah definitely a bit more relaxed in my approach. Moving forward again with the, in the coaching space, you applied for the Heartland coach role in 2021, but didn't get it. But you actually took up the offer of Observer. What what did that look like? Just in terms of were you just like involved in the team, just watching? Yeah, so like you said, applied for that job and for the assistant job in 2021 as well. But just missed out on that one, but then was asked to come in as a as a coach observer, they call it. But ended up going into their camp in, in a pretty hands-on role. Ended up being sort of the defence coach uh, for that. It was only a one-game campaign, so we were only there for oh, five or six days. But I really enjoyed my time in that space at the time. And Nigel Walsh, who was head coach then, and his head coach again this year, looking forward to working with him again. But yeah, it was a lot more hands-on than I envisaged. I thought I was going there to um, just sort of be a bit of a spectator, sit back and observe how they ran things. But um, Nigel's not like that. If you're sort of involved anywhere in the camp, then he likes to give jobs to people and empower people. So yeah, learned heaps and, and looking forward to again to this year. That's massive, eh? Because when you think about it, like, and it's something that, so we both know Flo, um, and he talked around in his podcast, it's like taking those opportunities. So obviously you applied for the job, didn't get the job, but an opportunity came up. And even though it was what you thought it would just be observing, then all of a sudden you're you're put into that space and mm. you actually got a job and a role. And it's just highlighting when those opportunities do come up, they're, yep. they're massive and they, they can, you know, move you on to, to other areas. And Yeah, it's interesting because when I interviewed for the job this year, and Nigel's on the interview panel as, as the head coach and he referenced back to that campaign and sort of the work I'd done within that sort of probably even helped me along into getting the role this time. So, yeah, it's about opportunities and um, definitely making the most of them. Almost finishing up here. Now, when did you start working for Poverty Bay Rugby? So I started here in 2019. So sort of an opportunity came up as... Um, they were looking for referee development manager at the time. It was only a, a part-time role, and I probably couldn't have taken the the job with with it only being a part-time. Josh and Boyce I managed to come up with an agreement at the time that where I had could work sort of part-time in Boyce High and part-time here. So um, yeah, that's when I made the move from I was at Campion two thousand eighteen. Um, as you know, first year out of playing professional rugby, which was, that was a massive learning curve for me actually. And then back into the rugby space where I always wanted to come back, back into in, in 2019. Yeah. So highlights or any achievements that you've had within the time at Poverty Bay Rugby, like in, in the workspace? Yeah. We talked about this last week as a staff. It's like seeing, seeing people develop from. You know where they start from, or where you've started from a few years ago, and then to seeing where they are now. Like there's a few referees um, that are now refereeing senior rugby, and you know to see their development. There's there's boys that um, get selected to go on to to high honours from from here. There's coaches that you see develop and go from being school or club coaches to being rep coaches and and higher. So uh, yeah, for me it's about Seeing other people achieve through, I guess, a bit of your work. Yeah, those are those are my highlights. Um, we've had some some tough periods, like through COVID and and things like that, where I think us as a union really dug deep and got through that challenging time really well, and came out the other side of that really well through working hard. So, yeah, a lot of things to be proud of, and nearly at the end of my five years here now, I think. Yeah, finishing up now. And this is a question that we ask all our guests. What does the value of sport mean to you? I think sport, the positive aspects that sport brings are, are massive. Not only on the, the team side. Um, you know, I love the team side. I love the, the camaraderie and the, um, you know, you sort of go into battle with a group and you to come out on the other side and you, you form those bonds and you create some real special memories. So that's in terms of the team aspect, I love I love that side of it. But on the individual side as well, it's around 
you know, especially if you're an aspiring athlete, the discipline that's required, the determination, the, the sacrifice, all those sort of things come into it. And they, um, I think you really develop those if you, especially yeah, if you do want to be, I guess, a professional athlete or a high level athlete, those, those sort of skills um, really develop. And what I've found is that massively transferable into, into normal life as well, the skills you, you learn in sport both on the individual side and the team side. So. And then there's the health benefits as well, which are, which are huge. So, yeah, sport. the value of sport for me is, is massive. Not only the physical aspects, but the mental side and the team side and then the what you can transfer from, from sport into day-to-day life. I think that's a, a perfect place to, to finish. It's a massive story. Like the, um, your journey is incredible. It's it's amazing, and I think not only like just in terms of now, obviously going into that coaching space. People listening today, obviously the coaches and parents are going to be loving it. But I think those athletes, those kids that are looking at potentially that career, I think your story has been that will resonate with them. I think it'll be awesome. So, um, you know, like with these shows, we've been talking to coaches and and, and around there areas of, of work and what they've been up to but I think it's really nice to see that journey as an athlete and I think that'll be something that's going to be really exciting for people to people to hear so thank you so much Namahinui um, for coming on today and I appreciate you've a busy man <laughs> and I appreciate the time that you've been able to spend with us today and the stories that you've sh- um, shared with us today are, are incredible so thank you very much. Ah, sweet. Thanks for having me and, and like you said if um, you know athletes, coaches can have a listen and, and take something out of today, then uh, yeah, that, that's massive for me as well.